This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. This week, we're looking at how art is being used to explore the link between Brodsworth Hall and the transatlantic slave trade. This autumn, the property and its gardens near Doncaster in South Yorkshire will be hosting a collection of five sculptures inspired by the story of a former owner of the estate. Joining us to explain more about the project and the reasons for doing it are Senior Interpretations Manager Joe Savage Hello and historian, archivist and researcher Angus Martin. Hi, how are you guys doing? Very well, thank you. Thanks to both of you for coming on. It's a pleasure to have you on. Worth saying as well that Angus is joining us from uh, way across the world. Can you tell us where you're coming from, Angus? Seba, Dutch Caribbean. It's a tiny island right off of um, St. Martin. You're about five hours behind, I believe? Yes, something like that. Okay, well, hopefully we won't get any delay on the line either. So we all crack on. Let's start then, Joe, I think, with the history of Brodsworth Hall. Can you tell us when it was built and who owns the house as we see it today? Okay, well, as we see it today, the magnificent hall and gardens were built by Charles Sabine and Georgiana Tellison in the 1860s. In 1859, Charles Sabine inherited a fortune, including the Brodsworth estate from his great-grandfather. And that wealth had been a long time coming. The inheritance had been subject to an unusual will that had been caught up in a legal dispute for about half a century. But eventually he came into this money and alongside a fortune inherited by his wife, they had the means to spend really lavishly. And over the next decade, they remodeled the estate, they knocked down the old hall, they built this new one, and they furnished it with luxurious and modern fittings. So he had been born with this great expectation of wealth and the hall and gardens really represent that physical fulfillment of those expectations. Yes, and of course, in the way that we see the house today is as this time capsule, isn't it, which has been a deliberate decision by English Heritage when they took over the property, which I believe they did in about 1990. And they've left it sort of as is. Um, it hasn't been restored like you might see at other properties, such as maybe Kenwood or something like that. And that's been deliberate, hasn't it? It's a strong contrast between how he would have inherited the property and then obviously built it versus what it looks like today absolutely you know in in just 10 years they went from blueprints to a fully furnished house and gardens and no expense was spared at the time it it would have been real display of wealth so how is the estate connected to the slave trade and slavery specifically so there's no indication that charles sabine or georgiana had anything to do with enslavement or endangered indentured labor themselves In fact, the majority of what you would see on a visit today dates to about a quarter of a century after the Slavery Abolition Act. But visitors to the hall will often ask, as you usually do when you're sort of marvelling at an implied wealth of a country house, how they make this money? Where did this come from? And in this instance, the money came in part from the fortune amassed by Peter Tellison, who owned Brodsworth Estate in 1791 until his death. And he's often described as an influential, shrewd, successful merchant and financier. The question is, well, what was he trading and in what was he investing? And looking in detail, it's clear that an extraordinarily significant part of his business was the trafficking and labor of enslaved people. So put quite simply, without the money derived from enslavement, he would not have been able to buy this estate. He was totally immersed in that world. 
he was a French Huguenot merchant and banker who settled in London in 1760 and he went on to make a lot of money and at this time products from the Caribbean from the colonies were booming um, it was a real growth industry and was hugely attractive to investors so it's not unusual for wealthy even kind of moderately wealthy people to have some stake in in that trade but mm. Tellison's involvement really does stand out in terms of the number and variety of his investments Angus would be able to give detail to that. Could we give a bit more detail on that, Angus, regarding Peter Tellison's connections to slavery? Was it people, tobacco, sugar, these sorts of things? Yes, Tellison was involved in the, the direct slave trade itself by supplying ships, insurance, but also directly in at least one voyage, directly connecting the UK, Africa and Grenada specifically. The British had just taken over Grenada and a number of other islands, and it was a new area for investment, basically, and Tennyson stepped in as part of that new investment from the UK. And one of the early ships that came to Grenada was actually one that he had a share in, arriving in Grenada with enslaved people from West Africa and being sold in St. George's at the time. So that was his direct involvement in, in the slave trade itself and in supplying finances to a lot of the new plantations in the Caribbean, in Grenada specifically, or in the ceded islands in general, he supplied finances to these French planters as well as British planters. And that money was basically to buy more enslaved people and to expand the production on these estates because you have these new territories being opened up and requiring this investment. Some of the older British islands were already heavily invested in or, um, or they were not producing as much. Their soils were depleted and things like that. So there was this massive investment in these new territories and Tellison stepped right in when it came to Grenada, supplying finances to several estates across the islands. So was he giving uh, loans and, or credits, that sort of thing? Yes, he was supplying loans to a lot of these new planters, many of them French, who did not have the necessary investments before that. So the whole investment market was definitely opened up. Mm. Um, and you do see that in several estates across the island. So he, whilst being directly involved and organising this slave trade for his own business, he had micro businesses going on also connected to the slave trade, which perpetuated the whole industry, really. Oh, definitely. I think he was just one of many investors at that time. That whole period, there was a, just an influx of British financiers, planters themselves that were just buying up all these French properties because some of the French were leaving because they did not want to remain under the British. So it's a combination of lots of smaller plantations with the investment becoming larger plantations, specifically sugarcane production, which needed more enslaved people to work there. So you get this mm. uh, massive amount of investments coming in from London, Bristol, and some of the other cities. And, and Tellison is just one of the many. But he puts a specific stamp on Grenada by investing in these specific um, plantations. I see. A lot of money pouring in from different angles, really, and, and exacerbating what we would describe yeah. now as a problem, really. Right, definitely. Yeah. 
Yeah. So we've got a good sense now of how Peter Tellison was involved in the slave trade and slavery, and it's obviously very directly. But um, is Brodsworth as a property back over in England unusual in having these kinds of connections? Are there any other properties in the local area in, in South Yorkshire that might have these connections? Well, absolutely. I mean, it, it isn't that unusual at all for a house to have strong slavery connections. University College London, UCL, has got an excellent database, which is well worth a visit, listing the legacies of slavery and how it's touched on very many properties, both belonging to those people who profited from slavery, but also those that fought for abolition. As you say, even just within the Yorkshire region, there are notable examples of both. And most sections of British society benefited in some way from the slave trade, and its impact was felt in all parts of the country. And slave-generated wealth was invested in industry, roads, railways, building, purchasing, renovating country houses, castles. But I guess in, in a sense that widespread involvement doesn't dilute or obfuscate the impact that those specific actions had on individual lives, both for those who were enslaved and for those who benefited. Absolutely. Going back to sort of the restitution of this story in a way, what's this latest project at Brodsworth all about? Because we've touched on it being about art. Yeah, so the project's called Liberty and Lottery, which references two of the slaving ships, part owned by Tellison. And we're working with significant contemporary artists and an international research team, including Angus, of course, to produce a thoughtful, balanced response to the story. And one of the outputs will be a series of new sculptures in the garden and the house. Brodsworth's famous for its gardens, which are decorated with sculptures of mainly Victorian takes on classical figures. And for one reason or another, those sculptures are no longer on their plinths, or some of those sculptures are no longer on their plinths, and the vast majority still are. There was a, a sad theft a number of years ago and some damage a bit later on. Mm. So we have these empty plinths that appear to have this unfulfilled presentational aspect. They want to show something that they're currently unable to. And we thought, well, what a perfect opportunity to present hidden or little-known stories without being heavy-handed about it. So our artists, which include a sculptor and a poet, have been asked to respond to the story within the space. Okay. And can you describe what they've created? So the sculptures are by an artist called Carl Gabriel, who produces figurative art in wire. His background is some four decades with Notting Hill Carnival. He's a carnival artist and has become renowned for, for his sculptural work. And he is creating pieces that reflect different aspects of the story from that sort of dislocation of culture represented in the form of the ships to forced labor. And he talks about the disparity between the accommodation of enslaved people on the plantations and the grand house that Tellison owned. So these sculptures sit in the environment really beautifully they're transparent but they also you know have a presence they're sort of a, a persistent whisper mm. about the story yeah i can imagine the sort of sense of the wire creating a sort of an outline almost like a ghostly image but also glinting in the sun somewhat and inviting the visitor to sort of come over and have a closer look is that the sort of it's vibe a- Exactly what we're hoping for, yes. It's an important story for Brodsworth, isn't it? And I think that's quite good that you've managed to, in some respects, there's the, there's the bad luck of the thefts and the empty plinths, but now you've got a platform, literally, on which to place a new story and a new artwork that can tell a fuller, more comprehensive story at Brodsworth. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. It's important because it's the story of the estate. Mm. So who, who owned it? Who shaped it? 
what did they do how did they make their fortunes but it also anchors the property in a wider context so that it's a, a connected story that played out beyond the walls of the estate in london throughout the rest of the country and several thousand miles away and as a historical organization we have a duty to explore all our stories from multiple angles you know history is always multi-layered there's not just one history so every layer of interpretation builds a fuller more vivid picture of bloodsworth and hopefully that will lead to a deeper sense of engagement as people walk around how do you feel about it angus i suppose new light and new research coming onto objects is always a good thing and it helps visitors ask questions i know you're very far away from the property but um have you seen the pictures and are you quite um inspired by them sure i uh, just look at it and, and i think you know I've, I've visited the uk i've visited different parts and for me growing up in the caribbean there is a connection like I said, it's you walk down certain streets and you feel connected because of the stories you've heard and things like that. So yes, there is some of that. But I think on another level, it is important because we get an opportunity to make this connection that we knew existed, but never really knew how. You know, and I think I think that's that's really the important thing. And it's it's a feedback loop as well, because now that it's been done in the UK, we get to experience it in Grenada because I think we have this this landscape that is not always readily accessible to us. You know, that history is not always accessible. And it's, mm. it's, it's these kind of projects that allow us to feed into that and begin to understand some of these complex issues that took place and begin to understand how we all fit into it. We'll get on to how you did some of your research regarding how Grenada played its role in the Brodsworth connection. But before we get on to that, we'll talk to Joe just briefly about how these objects are going to be signposted. Can you tell us how visitors will encounter them as they go around the property? Well, they'll encounter them by accident or on purpose, you know, as they, they complete the trail. So they don't jump out, you know, they're, they're designed to sit well in the space. And there will be contextual information alongside them. Each will be accompanied by a, a graphic panel. But we've tried to be relatively light touch with this. The sculptures are really very accessible and enjoyable in their own right and thought provoking. And if people are inspired by the story and they want to find out more, we've published a lot of research and we have further information online. Sure. I'm glad you said research there because Angus has obviously been involved in doing some new research on Brodsworth and its slave trade and slavery links. Can you tell us a bit more about that, Angus, what you found? Sure. One of the things, I guess, where in, in many of these stories, you can always find information about the properties and the, the numbers of people, the money and things like that. But what's often left out are the people. And in this case, the enslaved people. And I think that is where we, we see a big black hole almost. So that's one of the things that I looked at, concentrating on the perspective, looking at it from the perspective of the enslaved people, what happened on these plantations on a day-to-day -day basis? What happened? How did they live? What type of houses? You know, what was the labor like? You know, that kind of thing. So we, we're trying to follow, and, and it's not an easy process at all because there's just so little information. So we do have to take the little information we have and connect it to other places where we might have more information on a different plantation or something and come up with these stories of how these individuals can be represented to tell a story that gives us a better view of, of what, those, what those lives would have been on these plantations. So I think that's, that's a major part of what we've been trying to do. 
So could we say that the two ships owned by Peter Tallison would have docked somewhere on Grenada? They would have offloaded their human cargo of enslaved African people to work on these plantations. Are we right in saying that? Yes, we know that Grenada has this natural harbor. It's, a, it's, the, it's, the, it's like the, the erosion of a, of a volcanic crater, actually. So ships come into this really beautiful port and there the ships would unload, they would be put up for sale and distributed to these various plantations all over the island. And that's where the process begins. So you could imagine, you know, people being taken from their home and placed in this environment, this new environment, and just exposed to whole new existence, new language, a whole different setup, and, and, and then forced to labor on these plantations to create new lives, basically. How many plantations would these two ships worth of people be working on, do we know? I would say probably, uh, in most cases, many different plantation owners or the overseers would come and purchase because nobody would just buy from one ship. So people would add, as ships come in, they would add new people to the existing labor force, basically. Mm -hmm. So this number of people coming in, you probably would be able to supplement many plantations but there would be enough to probably fulfill the labor on about two, three plantations, sugar plantations, that is. Have you found any particular documentary evidence that brings home this reality of slavery then, Angus? I think in looking specifically at Peter Tellison's involvement, one of the properties that we're looking at is uh, Bacolet, in an area today called Maneri. And that plantation was he provided financing to a French family, the Cornelias, and over time they defaulted on their loan and he became owner of that plantation. So that is probably the one plantation where he had the most involvement. So we are looking at the, in, in these agreements, these financial agreements between Telusin's company and the Cornelias, those are the things that really give us the details, the information about the people because they generally have a list of the enslaved people in these plantations. So one of the things we've been trying to do is to follow some of those peoples, because we do have some slave registers later on in the early 1800s, just before the end of slavery. So we're trying to follow a few of these individuals to see if we can tell a better story, what their lives would have been like from when they were born under Tellison all the way to the end of slavery. So we're looking at those individuals to be able to tell a different story. And, and of course, their descendants would be current residents of that area in Grenada. Wow. OK, so that actually helps, I suppose, in some way, square the circle then between, you know, the connection of slavery and the British Empire and Brodsworth and Grenada. It helps everyone who's alive today try and understand in a holistic sense where they came from you know, what goes into their genes, what is their history. I suppose that's quite useful in a way. And it's good for you as a researcher to try and bring these things to light. Yes. One of the things I think we generally talk about, when you talk about a slave trade and slavery, we talk about numbers, but we really can talk about people's lives. And sometimes we don't see the connection between the slave trade and, and the, the society today. And I think that is, that is, to me, what is good about this project and projects like this is that it makes that connection. It's not just about what happened 150, 80, 200 years ago, but how that has impacted the current landscape. Mm. 
in Grenada, in the UK, you know, and that, that is something that it is continuing. And I think that's what the project is trying to do. It's to complete that loop. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think so, create this dotted line almost across the globe between Brodsworth near Doncaster in South Yorkshire to the Caribbean and, and to Grenada and hopefully make that line a bit less dotted and a bit more full and consistent so that you've got a real story and a real connection between the two places. I think that's absolutely true and, and, and that's something that we in Angus have really endeavoured to do through this project and have no intention of letting up when the project is over either you know this feels like this is a a shared endeavor apart from the artwork going on display at brodsworth are there any other physical links to the story of slavery at brodsworth because when i walked around in an episode previously we did the story of decay we didn't really touch on the slavery side of things which i feel a bit sad about now well there are a very few indeed you know the old hall that peter tillerson owned was demolished when the new hall and gardens were built so in a sense, it's it's not surprising that this significant part of the estate's origin story has been overlooked. There are some elements that are quite interesting, though. So the the only physical legacy from Peter Tillerson's estate that remains is, is the contents of his library. And that is something that we can explore as part of this story. What we will in, find in that is totally open to interpretation, but in a sense, books do represent at least the information that somebody is receiving and so to a certain extent could act as a indicator of someone's worldview so that that's interesting but beyond that no, there's very little kind of tangible remains right that's quite a difficult thing for english heritage as an organization and for individual researchers such as angus to work on really it's um you're trying to almost come to a crime scene as a detective in a way and uh, there's not an awful lot to go on in order to sort of solve the puzzle it's quite difficult Uh, isn't it absolutely one of the decisions we've made is not to anchor the interpretation to any one part of the hall and gardens because it's not speaking to the artifacts as such instead we have distributed the story throughout the gardens and house to talk more generally about the estate and about the legacy of wealth. So how have you made sure that you're getting all of this right then? I mean, it sounds like you're going off in the right direction. Yeah, that's a really tricky question. I think, do we ever get anything right, completely right? I think getting it right means three things. I think there's being faithful to the historic record, knowing the boundaries of our own knowledge and recognising that multiple perspectives exist, and striking a balance between information and engagement. So we've had wonderful support from our site volunteers, our community partners in Doncaster and our research partners in the Caribbean. We've had researchers linked to our Shout Out Loud participation program. So there's lots of input into this project. And we've been open about what we know and what we don't know. We've constantly checked each other to make sure that the project has always been thoroughly grounded in rigorous research. So it's been really rewarding to explore the overlooked stories of the site and having the ability to open the space to this topic is, is really liberating. And I hope it will enable us to explore other lesser known stories in the future. And Angus, what are your thoughts as well from someone who's from that part of the world at being able to work on such a project? It must be quite satisfying that you're adding to the knowledge, albeit perhaps in a piecemeal way because of the limited availability of that knowledge. But um, it must be quite satisfying and worthwhile for you. 
Definitely. I think the one thing is being able to complete the circle. I think growing up in Grenada and learning about slavery, learning about the history, I think we, we generally think that it's, it's just something that happened here and not recognizing all of these connections. So I think being able to work on this project and to work with Joe and, and, and Andrew and stuff really made me realize all of these connections and that they do exist and that people are exploring them. And I, I think it's, it's, it's creating that feedback loop. You know, we're talking about how the estate can now work with the community in Grenada and, and keep these connections because I think it's, it's a reaffirmation of what took place because I think a lot of people have forgotten or not been able to figure this stuff out. And I, I think this gives us an opportunity to do that. Yes, and I think the presence of these artefacts on plinths across the property and the site can really ensure that nothing is forgotten anymore. I think one of the things for me is being able to, if the community in Grenada can see this stuff that's going on at the estate in the UK, it will be for them, ah, now I get it. I understand what this was all about, what it produced somewhere else. Because we look at the Grenada community, there is poverty on a certain level. And then you look and it's like, wow, that's where it all it all went. And, and there could be that connection, I think. And people understand much more of what it was all about. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll hear the inspiring story of how one couple escaped their U.S. slave trade owners and successfully fled to England. They decide to escape over the sort of Christmas period of 1848. Ellen Craft in particular performs and dresses up as a white southern man. Thanks for listening. See you next time.